Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 217. We'll conclude the Scroll of Ecclesiastes with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 12 and follow with some thoughts about who decides who's in and who's out. Kohelet begins chapter 8 with a word to the wise about how to manage up and how to deal with powerful people. Quote, keep a king's utterance as though it concerned a vow to God. So let it be written. So let it be done. This seems like common sense, but just in case you need it broken down, you shouldn't mess with people in power because, quote, for whatever he desires he may do, since a king's word is power. And who can say to him, what are you doing? The great Oz has spoken. But there are certain realities that even the wisest and most accommodating person cannot overcome. Quote, For one knows not what will be, for what will be, who can tell of it? No man has power over the wind, to shut in the wind. And there is no power over the day of death. And there is no sending away from war, and wickedness will not make those who do it escape. And because the wicked are seen to so often prevail, it's demoralizing to persist in doing good. But even this is mere breath, and perhaps misunderstood because, quote, I have seen every deed of God that man cannot grasp, the deed which is done under the sun, inasmuch as man toils to seek and cannot grasp it. Even if the wise means to know, he will not be able to grasp it. In chapter 9, Kohelet reminds us of a basic reality, we all die, quote, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, and the clean and the unclean, and he who offers sacrifice and he who does not sacrifice, the good and the offender, he who vows and he who fears the vow. This is the evil in all that is done under the sun, for all have a single fate. And yet we're not just waiting around for that moment, or at least we shouldn't live our lives as if we were just waiting around for that moment. Quote, go, Eat your bread with rejoicing and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already been pleased by your deeds. At every season let your garments be white, and let oil on your head not be lacking. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all your days of mere breath that have been given to you under the sun, all your days of mere breath, for that is your share in life, and in your toil that you toil under the sun. But Kohelet is quick to remind us that, quote, not to the swift is the race, and not to the mighty the battle, nor to the wise bread, nor to the discerning wealth, nor to those who know favor, for a time of mishap will befall them all. In other words, It happens. What, shit? Sometimes. And then Kohelet relates a parable of a small town besieged by a mighty king. Within the town was a poor wise man who saved the town, through his wisdom, but, quote, no one recalled the poor man. Kohelet concludes, quote, better wisdom than might, but the poor man's wisdom is scorned and his words are unheard. The words of the wise, gently said, are heard more than the shout of the ruler among fools. Better wisdom than weapons, yet a single offender destroys much good. Chapter 10 is a collection of pithy sayings, many of which are about wisdom and foolishness and the corruption which is power, and how we should be careful from it. Here's a choice one that works on so many levels. Quote, a dead fly makes the perfumer's oil chalice stink. 
Kohelet refocuses in chapter 11 on arguably the most vexing thing of all, the uncertainty, which is life, and how we must learn to accommodate it. Quote, send out your bread upon the waters, for in the long course of time you will find it. In other words, you do you, even though the outcome is not readily apparent. Or, quote, give a share to seven and even to eight, for you know not what evil will be on the earth. In other words, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yes, I know. The egg thing is a cliché, but it's a cliché because it's true. <laughs> One must really live one's life because it could end at any moment. Quote, light is sweet and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. And though one should rejoice in youth, one should also be mindful that eventually God will bring you to judgment. But even then, it's still all mere breath, so do your best. It's all you can do, really. Kohelet concludes his scroll with dark pronouncements about the wickedness that is aging, the deterioration of the body, and images of abandonment and breakdown. Quote, For man is going to his everlasting house, and the mourners turn round in the market, until the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is smashed, and the pitcher is broken against the well, and the jug smashed at the pit. And dust returns to the earth as it was, and the life breath returns to God who gave it. Merest breath, said Kohelet. All is mere breath. But Kohelet is capped with an epilogue or an appendix of sorts that shifts into third person and brings the radical nihilism of Kohelet in line with the more mainstream ideology of the Tanakh, warning the youth not to spend too much time in idle talk. Quote, Beware of making many books, there is no end, and much chatter is a weariness of the flesh. The last word in this scroll surely takes the sting out of much of Kohelet's advice to us and will surely keep us all in line. Quote, fear God and keep his commands, for that is all humankind, since every deed will God bring to judgment for every hidden act, be it good or evil. Professor Avigdor Shenan is a scholar of Midrash and Agadah and Professor Emeritus of Literature at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. In his piece at the 929 website on Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he identifies three appendices to Ecclesiastes, each lasting two verses in length, and each beginning with a word that is a variation of the Hebrew word davar, which means thing, but also shares the same root as the word speak, or the infinitive to speak, lidaber. The first praises Kohelet, his wisdom, righteous deeds, and even the content of his words. The second also refers to Kohelet in a similar fashion, but elevates the divrei chachamim, the words of the sages, above all other works. And the third reframes Kohelet's teachings in a way that would make even his most skeptical and seemingly heretical comments palatable to mainstream readers and maintain his place in the canon. Shenan concludes that the second and third appendices, when considered together, present a warning to the reader that other books, those not considered divrei chachamim, you know, words of the wise, could lead to places you might not want to go. As the appendix warns, quote, beware of making many books, there is no end, and much chatter is a weariness of the flesh. This is a sound warning indeed. If the canon was still in flux, which if we consider that Kohelet 
penned Ecclesiastes in the second half of the third century BCE, that was probably the case. A wise person, or anyone perhaps not as wise, but hoping to be so, would have probably had access to many books in circulation, many of which were regarded as of value, while others found a jury still out. Consider that reality for a moment, or consider this little thought exercise. What were the top 10 best-selling novels in the United States in 1960? Which of these novels are still being read today? What about the top sellers of 1961? Now, if you had to pick in 1962 or 1963 or even 1970, which of these 20 books would be included in, say, high school literature courses 60 years hence, would you guess that it would be To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee? I went to high school in the late 80s, and we also read Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger, but we definitely didn't read Tropic of Cancer by Henry Miller or The Carpetbaggers by Harold Robbins. Your use of language has altered since our arrival. It is currently laced with, shall I say, more colorful metaphors. Double dumbass on you and so forth. You mean the profanity? Yeah. That's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example? All the collected works of Jack and Suzanne. The novels are Harold Roberts. Ah. The Giants. Who decides which books will linger and survive as part of the canon? I guess this question in some way is in the same family as the question, who decides which books should be banned? Clearly the answer to both questions is not Publishers Weekly or the New York Times. But is this person or persons who decide in the first instance the same as in the second instance? What does that Venn diagram look like? And I'm not going to include a dictionary definition of canon here because that's cliche and I've already done one today. But in common parlance, when something is canon, a movie or a novel or a work of art or an idea, it commands a new status, one that puts it beyond reproach, beyond the stains one makes with the natural oils in your fingertips as you handle it lovingly or critically. Canon is settled. It's established. It's what defines the rules and norms. And who does the settling, establishing, and defining? Well, traditionally, it's been an elite cohort of scholars and critics, men, who embrace this work of art or that novel or that piece of cinema and catapult it into the heavens for all to admire. When it comes to similar canons like the all-time best in baseball, the Baseball Writers Association of America decides who gets inducted to the Hall of Fame. Who decides who gets inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is shrouded in mystery, to make sure those persons are free from lobbying and pressure from industry folks or agents or the artists themselves. But these days, on platforms like Reddit and various Discord servers, fans coalesce around certain movies, TV series, video games, comic books, and launch cultural artifacts of their own choosing into the firmament. Elbow patches on the Tweed Blazer folks like Francis Bacon, I'll see you and raise you Ronald Moore's Battlestar Galactica or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You say Dostoevsky, I say the DC Universe. You say Steinbeck, I say Star Wars. The original trilogy, not the prequels or those garbage sequels. And I suppose all this canon talk has that whiff of the age-old low versus high culture stank, but it goes beyond that. 
In the fiercely democratizing and combative space, which is the internet, canon has transcended itself. What was once a noun is now also an adjective, as in, for example, what went down and how the Force works in The Last Jedi. According to legions of fans, how the Force works in The Last Jedi is just not canon. In other words, and see if you can follow the logic, The Last Jedi itself is canon because it's part of the film series that began in 1977 with The New Hope, aka Star Wars, but it's also not canon because it's not internally consistent with the other films in the series. And this is where the present moment figures into this business so powerfully. For as long as humans could love a cave painting, cultural artifact, or anything for that matter, they wanted other humans to love it too. Me loving it isn't enough. And so, the one thing became two things, then the two things became a body of work, and that body of work attracted and inspired other things and became a movement, and the movement became a norm, which became the measure for other things. And this process overlooks the reality that some things that make the cut are, well, problematic. Let's take the Western canon, touted famously by Harold Bloom in his 1994 bestseller, The Western Canon, The Books and School of the Ages, and the hundreds and thousands of cigar-smoking scolds before him. Bloom would tell us that every example, every work on his list has literary merit and value. Each example should have a rightful place in those surveys of Western lit courses that were the backbone of literature departments across North America for decades, nay, centuries. Even though, say, Melville and Conrad represented black and brown people as less than human. Even though, say, Edith Wharton described Jews as polluting and corrupting the fine, upstanding white principles of marriage, social relations, and identity. I could go on. And when someone comes along and says, so let's just add Toni Morrison or Franz Kafka to balance that out, I'd say great. However, unfortunately, syllabus building is a zero-sum game. So if we add a black woman and a Jew to the Premier League, then two white men are necessarily relegated. And for white men, this is an unconscionable harm. Canon is now, or perhaps has always been, not a place of decidedness, but debate. And the participants in that debate are not limited to a few white men. This was not as much the case uh, when it comes to Ecclesiastes and the canon. I alluded to books that didn't make the biblical cut way back in episode 1, but I also discussed the process of canonizing in episode 210, when I talked about the rabbinic debate about including Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes in the Tanakh, and how content just might not be a disqualifying factor for inclusion in the canon. So perhaps a recap of how the Tanakh came to be the Tanakh is in order here, and we might consider how the second and third appendices to Ecclesiastes hint that the process was not limited to a rarefied men's lounge in Hellenistic Judea, but a freewheeling rough-and-tumble process that took centuries and unfolded in different locations. Even though we are 217 episodes in, it bears repeating that the Tanakh, an acronym for Torah, Nevi'im, the prophets, and Kituvim, the writings, traditionally consist of 24 books. Five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Eight books of the prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, Treasar, 
and 11 books in the Ketuvim, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Scrolls of Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Now note that according to this count, Ezra and Nehemiah are considered one volume, even though by other counts it's considered two separate books. Today, scholars tend to think that the youngest text in the Tanakh, that is, the ones that came to be added to the canon most recently to us, were the books of Jonah, Lamentations, and Daniel, which were composed as late as the 2nd century BCE. But there are other texts from this period and later that didn't make the cut into the Tanakh, but found themselves included in the Septuagint, or Greek translation of the Tanakh, produced by Hellenized Jews. Perhaps they were popular or regarded by some as upstanding, or perhaps they were in the right place at the right time. Some of these works, 14 in all, are collected under the title Apocrypha, from the Greek hidden things, and are considered worthy of study, but not divinely inspired. Not to be confused with the pseudepigrapha, which are outside works ostensibly written by a biblical figure, or deuterocanonical works, which are regarded by some as inside, but outside by others. You can find the list of apocryphal works in the King James Bible of 1611 under the heading Books Called Apocrypha. What's relevant for this discussion are the books Ecclesiasticus, otherwise known as the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, or the Book of Ben Sirah, and 2nd Maccabees. Ecclesiasticus, Wisdom of Ben Sirach, or Ben Sirah, dates from 180 BCE. It was written in Hebrew, perhaps in Jerusalem, or Alexandria in Egypt. It was translated by the author's grandson in Egypt in 132 BCE. We know this because the grandson added an extensive prologue where he explicitly mentions the date, that is, the 38th year of the reign of the Ptolemaic king Eurogetes II. Bible scholars and twin sisters Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson discovered portions of a medieval manuscript of Bensira in the Cairo Geniza. Further investigations would reveal five more portions of the manuscript. Why this text sheds some light on canon development is its author, Shimon ben Yeshua ben Eliezer Sira, providing a list of names of the great biblical figures. The list follows the order of the Torah and Nevi'im, the prophets, and even mentions figures in the Ketuvim, which means that ben Sira would have had access to the five books of the Torah, the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve minor prophets, Treasar. He does not mention anyone in the scroll of Ruth, Esther, or Daniel, nor does he mention the Song of Songs. From this, we may conjecture that either he didn't consider, say, Mordechai or Daniel as great, or didn't like sexy stuff, or perhaps he didn't consider these texts to be legit, or as the kids would say today, he didn't think they were canon. Second Maccabees was originally written in Koine Greek, and focused on the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes and the defeat of the Seleucid Empire in 161 BCE by Judah Maccabee. The beginning of the book includes two letters sent by Jerusalemite Jews to the Jews of Egypt concerning the celebration of Hanukkah, a new feast to mark the purification of the temple and the defeat of Seleucid general Nicanor. If the author inserted them in the text, it would mean that the book was written after 124 BCE, the date of the second letter. Why this is relevant is because 2 Maccabees recounts that Nehemiah, whose book we will be reading in episodes 227 through 230, founded, quote, a library and collected books about the kings and prophets and the writings of David and letters of kings about votive offerings. 
2nd Maccabees also recounts that Judah Maccabee also collected sacred books. Now, we don't have any direct quotes from sources in 2nd Maccabees. That is, you know, he doesn't mention or quote from Tanakh or Nevi'im or anything like that. But moving ahead to the first century CE, we come across the first non-Tanakhic text that directly quotes from Tanakhic sources. Philo Judeus, or Philo of Alexandria, was a Jewish Hellenistic philosopher who lived in Alexandria, hence the name. He was arguably the first Jew to explicitly write philosophy and mount a spirited defense of Jewish tradition and thought against the critiques and onslaught of Hellenic thought. In all of his writings, he never refers to the Tanakh as a three-part book, nor does he quote from any source outside the Torah. However, he does allude to the holy prophets, the hymns and psalms, and he also mentions Ben Sirah. Another extra-Tanakhic source and product of the first century CE world comes from Josephus, Jewish tradition's first historian. Josephus, in Against Appian, a work of apologetics defending Jewish tradition, this time from the Romans, he refers to a three-part Tanakh, the five books of the Torah, 13 books of the Nevi'im, and four books of hymns and wisdom. For those following at home, that adds up to 22, not the canonical 24. So, which two didn't merit mention? It's not clear. But as discussed in episode 210, even the rabbis featured in the Talmud, consummate insiders, were not so sanguine about including Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes in the canon. And these rabbis were alive and kicking well into the common era, which is to say that when the appendices of Kohelet warn us about other books, those not considered divrei chachamim, words of the wise, and how they could lead to places you might not want to go, some of these popular texts were eventually and ironically included in the Tanakh, like Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, and yes, even Ecclesiastes. Some of these other books were included in the external books preserved in other traditions, but some actually more, like most, were lost. And though the finger-waggers and scolds might be pleased at their disappearance, think back to our bestseller thought experiment. It's not obvious in the moment which text will flourish and which will fade. But I'm sure Kohelet would have two words to describe those that would venture to pronounce which books should withstand the test of time and which should fade into oblivion. Mere breath. All is mere breath. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 218, when we begin the Scroll of Esther with chapters 1 through 3.